Book One, Part One, of Part Four of the Memoirs of Chateaubriand, Volume Five. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nicole Lee. Part Four of the Memoirs of Chateaubriand, Volume Five by François René de Chateaubriand, translated by Alexander Teixeira de Matos. Book One, Part One. Infirmerie de Marie-Thérèse, Paris, October 1830 Out of the turmoil of the three days, I am quite surprised to find myself opening the fourth part of this work amid a profound calm. It seems to me that I have doubled the cape of storms and penetrated into a region of peace and silence. If I had died on the 7th of August of this year, the last words of my speech in the House of Peers would have been the last lines of my history. My catastrophe, being that of a past of twelve centuries, would have augmented my memory. My drama would have ended magnificently. But I did not fall under the blow. I was not struck to the ground. Pierre de l'Etoile wrote this page of his journal on the day following the assassination of Henry the Fourth, And here I end with the life of my king, the second register of my melancholic pastimes, and my vain and curious researches, both public and private, interrupted often since the past month by the watches of the sad and irksome nights which i have suffered similarly this last for the death of my king i had proposed to close my ephemerides with this register but so many new and curious occurrences have presented themselves through this signal mutation that i pass to another which also will go before god pleases and i doubt twill not be very long l'etoile saw the death of the first bourbon I have just seen the fall of the last. Ought I not to close here the register of my melancholic pastimes and of my vain and curious researches? Perhaps. But so many new and curious researches have presented themselves through this signal mutation that I pass to another register. Like L'Etoile, I lament the adversities of the dynasty of St. Louis. Nevertheless, I am obliged to admit, there mingles with my sorrow a certain inward satisfaction. I reproach myself with it, but I cannot prevent it. This satisfaction is that of the slave delivered from his chains. When I abandoned the career of a soldier and a traveller, I felt a certain sadness. Now I feel joy, freed convict that I am of the galleys of the world and the court. Faithful to my principles and my oaths, I have betrayed neither liberty nor the king. I carry away neither wealth nor honours. I go as poor as I came. Happy to end a career which was hateful to me, I lovingly return to repose. Blessed be thou, O my native and dear independence, soul of my life. Come, bring me my memoirs, that alter ego whose confidant, idle and muse you are. The hours of leisure are fit for storytelling. A shipwrecked mariner, I shall continue to relate my shipwreck to the fishermen on shore. Returning to my primitive instincts, I become a free man and a traveller once again. I end my course as I began it. The closing circle of my days brings me back to the starting point. On the road which I once took as a careless conscript, I am going to travel as an experienced veteran, with my furlough in my shako, the stripes of time upon my arm, a knapsack full of years upon my back. Who knows? Perhaps I shall, stage by stage, recover the reveries of my youth. I shall call many dreams to my help, to defend me against that horde of truths which are begotten in old days 
even as dragons hide themselves in ruins. It will depend but on myself to knot together again the two ends of my existence, to blend far distant periods, to mingle illusions of different ages, since the prince whom I met in exile, on leaving my paternal home, I now meet in banishment, on my way to my last abode. I rapidly wrote the little introduction to this part of my memoirs in the month of October last year, but I was unable to continue this labour because I had another on my hands. This was the work which concluded the edition of my complete works. From this work again I was diverted, first by the trial of the ministers, and next by the sack of Saint-Germain d'Auxerrois. The trial of the ministers and the flurry in Paris made no great impression on me. After the trial of Louis XVI and the revolutionary insurrections, all is small in the matters of trials and insurrections. The ministers, when coming from Vincennes to the Luxembourg, and returning to Vincennes, while sentence was being passed, went through the Rue d'Enfer. I could hear the wheels of their carriage from the back of my retreat. How many events have passed before my door? The defenders of those men did not rise to the level of their task. None took a high enough view of the matter. The advocate predominated too greatly in the speeches. If my friend the Prince de Polignac had chosen me for his second, with what an eye should I have looked upon those perjurers setting themselves up for judges of a perjurer? What I should have said to them? It is you who dare to be my client's judges. It is you who, all sullied with your oaths, dare to impute it as a crime to him that he ruined his master when he thought he was serving him. You, the instigators, you who urged him to issue the ordinances. Change places with him whom you claim the right to judge. He who was accused becomes the accuser. If we have deserved to be struck, it is not by you. If we are guilty, it is not towards you, but towards the people. They are waiting for us in the yard of your palace, and we shall take our heads to them. After the trial of the ministers came the scandal of Saint-Germain-Loxerrois. The royalists, full of excellent qualities, but sometimes stupid, and often aggravating, never calculating the range of their measures, always thinking that they would restore the legitimacy by affecting a colour in their cravats or a flower in their buttonholes, occasioned deplorable scenes. It was evident that the revolutionary party would profit by the service held in commemoration of the Duc de Berry to make a noise. Now, the legitimists were not strong enough to oppose this, and the government was not settled enough to maintain order, and so the church was pillaged. A Voltairean and progressive apothecary triumphed fearlessly over a steeple of the year 1300 and a cross already overthrown by other barbarians at the end of the ninth century. Consequently, upon the exploits of these enlightened pharmaceutics come the devastation of the archbishop's palace, the profanation of the sacred things, and the processions copied from those of Lyon. The execution and the victims were lacking, but there were plenty of buffoons, masks, and diverse carnival delights. The burlesque sacrilegious procession marched on one side of the Seine, while the National Guard, pretending to hasten in aid, defiled on the other. The river separated order and anarchy. It is stated that a man of talent was there as an onlooker, and that he said, on seeing the chasubles and books floating on the Seine, What a pity they did not throw the archbishop in! A profound utterance, for indeed a drowned archbishop must be a pleasant sight. That makes liberty and enlightenment take so great a step forward. We old witnesses of old deeds are obliged to tell you that you see here but pale and wretched copies. 
you still possess the revolutionary instinct but you no longer have its energy you can be criminal only in imagination you would like to do evil but your heart lacks courage and your arm strength you would like to see fresh massacres but you would no longer set to work to commit them if you want the revolution of july to be great and to remain great do not let monsieur cadet de gassicourt be its real hero and Maillet its ideal personage paris end of march eighteen thirty one i was out of my reckoning when after the days of july were over i thought that i was entering a region of peace the fall of the three sovereigns had obliged me to explain myself in the house of peers the prescription of those kings forbade me to remain dumb on the other hand philip's newspapers were asking me why i refused to serve a revolution which consecrated the principles which i had defended and diffused i had needs to speak on behalf of the general truths and to explain my personal conduct an extract from a little pamphlet which will be forgotten de la restauration et de la monarchie elective will continue the thread of my narrative and that of the history of my times despoiled of the present possessing but an uncertain future beyond the tomb i feel a need that my memory should not be injured by my silence i must not hold my peace touching a restoration in which i have taken so much part which is being daily outraged and which is at length being prescribed before my eyes in the middle ages at times of calamity men used to take a religious and lock him in a tower where he fasted on bread and water for the salvation of the world i am not unlike this twelfth-century monk through the dormer window of my expiatory jail i have preached my last sermon to the passers-by here is the epitome of that sermon as i predicted in my last speech in the tribune of the peers the monarchy of july is in an absolute condition of glory or of laws of exception it lives by the press and the press is killing it devoid of glory it will be devoured by liberty if it attack that liberty it will perish it would be a fine thing if after driving out three kings with barricades on behalf of the liberty of the press we were to be seen erecting new barricades against that liberty and yet what is to be done will the redouble action of the tribunals and the laws suffice to restrain the writers a new government is a child that can walk only in leading strings are we to put back the nation into swaddling clothes will that terrible nursling which has sucked blood in the arms of victory had so many bivouacs not burst its bandages there was but one old stock deeply rooted in the past which could have withstood with impunity the gales blowing from the liberty of the press to listen to the declamations of the moment it seems that the exiles of edinburgh are the poorest fellows living and that they are nowhere missed the present to-day lacks nothing but the past a small thing as though the centuries did not make use of each other's pedestals and as though the last comer could support itself in mid-air it is useless for our vanity to take offence at memories to erase the fleur-de-lis to proscribe names and persons that family the heir of a thousand years has left an immense void by its withdrawal one feels it everywhere those individuals so paltry in our eyes have shaken europe in their fall to however small a degree events produce their natural effects and bring about their rigorous consequences charles x in abdicating will have made all those gothic kings the grand vassals of the past under the suzerainty of the capets abdicate with him 
we are marching towards a general revolution. If the transformation which is being effected follows its inclination and meets with no obstacles, if popular reason continues its progressive development, if the education of the middle classes suffers no interruption, the nations will become levelled in a uniform liberty. If that transformation is stayed, the nations will become levelled in a uniform despotism. This despotism will not last long, because of the advanced age of intelligence, but it will be harsh, and a long social dissolution will follow it. Preoccupied as I am with these ideas, it is clear why I was, bound as an individual to remain true to what seemed to me the best safeguard of the public liberties, the least perilous road by which to attain the complement of those liberties. It is not that I have the pretension to be a tearful preacher of sentimental politics, an eternal repeater of white plumes and commonplaces a la Henry the Fourth, casting my eyes over the space that separates the tower of the temple from the palace in Edinburgh, I should doubtless find as many calamities heaped up as there are centuries accumulated on a noble race. A woman of sorrow, above all, has been loaded with the heaviest burden, as being the strongest. There is not a heart but breaks at the thought of her. Her sufferings have risen so high that they have become one of the grandeurs of the revolution. But when all is said and done, no one is obliged to be king. Providence sends particular afflictions to whom it pleases, always brief ones, because life is short, and those afflictions are not counted in the general destinies of the peoples. Even if the proposition which forever banishes the deposed family from French territory be a corollary of the deposition of that family, that corollary carries no conviction for me. I should in vain seek my place in the several categories of persons who have become attached to the actual order of things. They are men who, after taking the oath to the Republic one and indivisible, to the directory of five persons, to the consulate of three, to the empire of one alone, to the first restoration, to the additional act to the constitutions of the empire, to the second restoration, have something left to swear to Louis-Philippe. I am not so rich. They are men who flung their word on the Place de Greve in July, like those roaming goat-herds who play at odd or even among ruins. Those men treat as a fool and simpleton, whosoever does not reduce politics to a question of private interests. I am a fool and a simpleton. There are timorous people who would have much preferred not to swear, but who saw themselves being butchered, together with their grandparents, their grandchildren, and all the landlords, if they had not trembled out their oaths. This is a physical effect which I have not yet experienced. I shall wait for the infirmity, and if it comes to me, I shall consider. There are great lords of the empire linked to their pensions by sacred and indissoluble bonds, whatever be the hand they fall from. A pension is in their eyes a sacrament. It stamps a character like orders or marriage. No pensioned head can ever cease to be so. Pensions being charged to the treasury, they remain charged to the same treasury. As for me, I have the habit of divorce from fortune. I am too old for her, and abandon her, lest she should leave me. There are high barons of the throne and the altar, who have not betrayed the ordinances. No! But the insufficiency of the means employed to carry out the ordinances has excited their spleen. Indignant to find shortcomings in despotism, they have gone to seek another antechamber. It is impossible for me to share their indignation and their abode. There are men of conscience who are perjurers only to be perjurers, who, while yielding to force, are none the less for the right. 
they weep over that poor charles x whom they first dragged to his ruin by their advice and then put to death by their oaths but if ever he or his house revive they will be very thunderbolts of legitimacy as for me i have always been devoted to death and i am the funeral procession of the old monarchy like the poor man's dog lastly there are trusty knights who have dispensations from honour and permits of disloyalty in their pocket i have none i was the man of the possible restoration of the restoration accompanied by every kind of liberty that restoration took me for an enemy it is ruined i must undergo its fate shall i go to attach the few years that remain to me to a new fortune like the hems of dresses which women drag from court to court for all the world to tread upon at the head of the young generations i should be suspect following them is not my place i am fully aware that none of my faculties has aged i understand my century better than ever i penetrate more boldly into the future than anybody but necessity has pronounced its decree to end his life opportunely is a necessary condition for the public man lastly the etudes historiques have just appeared i will quote the introduction which is a real page of my memoirs and contains my history at the very moment at which i am writing introduction remember so as not to lose sight of the pace of the world that at that time there were citizens engaged like myself in ransacking the archives of the past amid the ruins of the present in writing the annals of the old revolutions to the uproar of the new revolutions they and i taking as our table in the crumbling edifice the stone that had fallen at our feet while awaiting that which was to crush our heads etude historique i would not for the sake of the days that remain for me to live begin again the eighteen months that have just elapsed none will ever have an idea of the violence which i have done on myself i have been forced to abstract my mind for ten twelve and fifteen hours a day from what was passing around me in order childishly to abandon myself to the composition of a work of which no one will read a line who would peruse forced-out volumes when it is already so difficult to read the feuilleton of a newspaper i was writing ancient history and modern history was knocking at my door in vain i cried wait i am coming to you it passed on to the sound of the cannon carrying with it three generations of kings and how marvellously the times agree with the very nature of these etudes men are overthrowing the cross and persecuting the priests and the cross and the priests occur on every page of my narrative they are banishing the caputs and i am publishing a history in which the caputs occupy eight centuries the longest and the last work of my life that which has cost me most research care and years that in which i have perhaps stirred up most ideas and facts appears at a time when it can find no readers it is as though i flung it into a pit where it will sink down under the mass of the rubbish that will follow it when a society is being composed and decomposed when the existence of each and all is at stake when one is not sure of a future of an hour's duration who cares what his neighbour does says or thinks men have something else to trouble their heads about than nero constantine julian the apostles the martyrs the fathers of the church the goths the huns the vandals the franks clovis charlemagne hugh capet and henry the fourth they have something else to think of than the shipwreck of the old world at a time when we are all involved in the shipwreck of the new world does it not argue a sort of dotage 
a kind of feeble-mindedness to busy oneself with literature at such a time that is true but this dotage has nothing to do with my brain it comes from the antecedents of my spiteful fortune if i had not made so many sacrifices to the liberties of my country i should not have been obliged to contract engagements which are now being fulfilled under circumstances doubly deplorable to myself no author has ever been put to such a proof thank god it is nearly at an end i have nothing left to do but to sit on ruins and despise that life which i scorned in my youth after these very natural complaints which have involuntarily escaped me one thought comes to console me i began my literary career with a work in which i considered christianity in its poetic and moral aspects i end it with a work in which i regard the same religion in its philosophical and historical aspects i began my political career under the restoration i end it with the restoration it is not without a secret satisfaction that i observe this consistency with myself paris may eighteen thirty one i have not abandoned the resolution which i conceived at the moment of the catastrophe of july i have been considering the ways and means of living abroad difficult ways and means because i have nothing the purchaser of my works has all but made me a bankrupt and my debts prevent me from finding any one willing to lend me money be this as it may i shall go to geneva with the sum that has accrued to me from the sale of my last pamphlet i am leaving a procuration to sell the house in which i write this page for the sake of the order of dates if i find a customer for my bed i can find another bed outside france in these uncertainties and movements it will be impossible for me until i am settled somewhere to resume the sequence of my memoirs at the place where i interrupted them i shall continue therefore to write down the things of the actual moment of my life i shall communicate these things by means of the letters which i may happen to write on the road or during my different stoppages i shall afterwards join the intermediary facts by a journal which will fill up the intervals between the dates of those letters to madame recamier lyon wednesday eighteenth may eighteen thirty one here i am too far away from you i have never made so sad a journey wonderful weather nature all arrayed the nightingale singing a starry night and all this for whom i shall indeed have to return to where you are unless you be willing to come to my aid to madame recamier lyon friday twentieth may i spent the day yesterday in wandering beside the rhone i contemplated the town where you were born the hill upon which rose the convent where you were chosen as the fairest an expectation which you did not disappoint and you are not here and years have elapsed and you have since been exiled to your birthplace and madame de stael is no more and i am leaving france one singular personage belonging to those old days has appeared before me i send you his note because of its unexpectedness and its surprise this personage whom i had never seen is planting pines in the mountains of lyonnais it is a long cry from there to the Rive d'eau and the maison à vendre what different parts men play on earth hyacinthe has told me of the regrets and the newspaper articles i am not worth all that you know that i sincerely think so for twenty-three hours out of the twenty-four the twenty-fourth is dedicated to vanity which however is of slight duration and soon passes i wanted to see nobody here 
Monsieur Thiers, who was on his way to the south, forced my door. Note enclosed in the above letter. A neighbour, your fellow-countryman, who has no other claim upon you than a profound admiration for your glorious talent and your admirable character, would like to have the honour of seeing you and offering you the homage of his respect. This next-door neighbour at your hotel, this fellow-countryman, is called Elvia. To Madame Ricamier, Lyon, Sunday, 22nd May. We leave to-morrow for Geneva, when I shall find more memories of you. Shall I ever see France again, after I have once crossed the frontier? Yes, if you will, that is to say, if you remain there. I do not wish for the events which might offer me another chance of returning. I shall never allow the misfortunes of my country to enter among the number of my hopes. I shall write to you on Tuesday the 24th from Geneva. When shall I again see your little handwriting, the younger sister of mine? Geneva, Tuesday, 24th May. We arrived here yesterday and are looking at houses. We shall probably make shift with the little summer-house on the edge of the lake. I cannot tell you how sad I feel as I busy myself with these arrangements. Again another future. Again to begin anew a life which I thought I had ended. I mean to write you a long letter when I am a little at rest. I dread that rest, for then I shall be contemplating without distraction those dim years upon which I am entering with a heart so much oppressed. 9th June, 1831 you know that a reformed sect has been established in the midst of the Protestants. One of the new pastors of the new church has been to see me, and has written me two letters worthy of the first apostles. He wants to convert me to his faith, and I want to turn him into a papist. We argue as though living in Calvin's day, but loving each other in Christian brotherhood and without burning one another. I do not despair of his salvation. He is quite shaken by my arguments in favour of the popes. You cannot conceive the pitch of exaltation to which he has risen, and his candour is admirable. If you come to me, accompanied by my old friend Ballanche, we shall do wonders. In one of the Geneva newspapers, a Protestant controversial book is advertised, and the authors are urged to stand firm, because the author of the Génie du Christianisme is close at hand. There is a certain consolation in finding a little free people, administered by the most distinguished men, among which religious ideas form the basis of liberty and the chief occupation of life. I lunched at Monsieur de Constance, beside Madame Necker, who is unfortunately deaf, but a woman of rare qualities and the greatest distinction. We spoke only of yourself. I had received your letter, and I told Monsieur de Sismondi the amiable things you had said for his benefit. You see, I am taking your lessons. Lastly, here are some verses. You are my star and I am waiting for you to go to that enchanted island. Delphi married, O oh, muses! I have told you in my last letter why I could write neither on the peerage nor on the war. I should be attacking a contemptible body to which I have belonged, and preaching honour to those who no longer possess it. It needs a sailor to read the verses and understand them. I put myself in Monsieur Lenormand's hands. Your intelligence will suffice for the last three stanzas, and the key to the riddle is at the foot. Geneva, 18th June, 1831. You have received all my letters. I am constantly expecting a few words from you. I can see that there will be nothing for me, but still I am always surprised when the post brings me only newspapers. Not a soul writes to me except yourself. Not a soul remembers me except yourself, and that is a great charm. I love your solitary letter, which does not arrive as it used to arrive,
in the days of my magnificence, in the midst of packets of dispatches, and of all those letters of attachment, admiration, and meanness, which vanish with fortune. After your little letters, I shall see your fair self, if I do not go to join you. You shall be my testamentary executrix. You shall sell my poor retreat. The price will enable you to travel towards the sun. At this moment, the weather is admirable. As I write to you, I can see Mont Blanc in its splendour. From the top of Mont Blanc, one sees the Apennines. It seems to me as though I have but three steps to take to arrive in Rome, where we shall go, for all will get settled in France. Our glorious country lacked but one thing in order to have passed through every form of wretchedness, to have a government of cowards. She has it now, and her youth is about to be swallowed up in doctrine, literature, and debauch, according to the particular character of the individual. The chapter of accidents remains, but when a man drags along life's road as I do, the most likely accident is the end of the journey. I do no work, I can do nothing more. I am bored, it is my nature, and I am like a fish in water. Nevertheless, if the water were a little less deep, perhaps I should be better pleased in it. Journal from the 12th of July to the 1st of September, 1831. The Paquis near Geneva. I am settled at the Paquis with Madame de Chateaubriand. I have made the acquaintance of Monsieur Rigaud, chief syndic of Geneva. Above his house, by the edge of the lake, going up the Lausanne road, you find the villa of two clerks of Monsieur de la Panouse, who have spent a million five hundred thousand francs in building it, and laying out their gardens. When I pass on foot before their dwelling-house, I wonder at Providence, which has placed witnesses of the restoration at Geneva, in them and in me. What a fool I am! What a fool! The Sieur de la Panouse went through royalism and misery with me. See to what his clerks have risen for having favoured the conversion of the funds, which I had the simplicity to oppose, and by virtue of which I was turned out. Here are the gentlemen. They drive up in an elegant tilbury, hat on ear, and I am obliged to step into a ditch, lest the wheel should carry off a skirt of my old frock-coat. And yet, I have been a peer of France, a minister, an ambassador, and in a cardboard box I have all the principal orders of Christendom, including the Holy Ghost and the Golden Fleece. If the clerks of the Sieur César de la Panouse, now millionaires, cared to buy my box of ribbons for their wives, they would do me a lively pleasure. Nevertheless, all is not roses for the Messieurs B. They are not yet Genevese nobles, that is to say, they have not yet reached the second generation. Their mother still lives in the lower part of the town, and has not risen to the Saint-Pierre quarter, the Faubourg Saint-Germain of Geneva. But with God's help, nobility will follow on money. It was in 1805 that I saw Geneva for the first time. If two thousand years had elapsed between the dates of my two journeys, would they be further separated from each other than they are? Geneva belonged to France. Bonaparte was shining in all his glory, Madame de Stael in all hers. There was no more question of the Bourbons than if they had never existed. And Bonaparte, and Madame de Stael, and the Bourbons, what has become of them? And I, I am still there. Monsieur de Constant, a cousin of Benjamin Constant, and Mademoiselle de Constant, an old maid full of wit, virtue, and talent, live in the cottage of Souterre, 
on the bank of the Rhone. They are overlooked by another country house, which was formerly Monsieur de Constance. He sold it to the Princesse Belgejoso, a Milanese exile, whom I saw pass like a flower through the fete which I gave in Rome for the Grand Duchess Helen. During my boating excursion, an old oarsman tells me of the deeds of Lord Byron, whose house we see standing on the Savoyard side of the lake. The noble peer would wait for a tempest to rise before setting sail. From the deck of his felucca he leapt into the waves and swam in the midst of the gale to land at the feudal prisons of Bonivar. He was always the actor and the poet. I am not so eccentric. I also love the storms, but my loves with them are secret, and I do not confide them to the boatmen. I have discovered behind Ferney a narrow valley in which runs a tiny stream, some seven or eight inches deep. This rivulet waters the roots of a few willows, hides itself here and there under patches of watercress, and shakes rushes on whose tips perch blue-winged dragonflies. Did the man of trumpets ever see this refuge of silence, right up against his resounding house? No, without a doubt. Well, the water is there, it still flows. I do not know its name, perhaps it has none. Voltaire's days are spent. Only his fame still makes a little noise in a little corner of our little world, even as that streamlet can be heard at a dozen paces from its banks. Men differ from one another. I am charmed with this deserted water furrow. Within sight of the Alps, the palm-leaf of a fern which I gather delights me. The murmuring of a ripple over pebbles makes me quite happy. An imperceptible insect, seen only by myself, which plunges into the moss as into a vast solitude, occupies my gaze and makes me dream. These are intimate trifles, unknown to the fine genius who, disguised as Orosman, played his tragedies, wrote to the princes of the earth, and forced Europe to come to admire him in the hamlet of Ferney. But were not those trifles too? The transitions of the world are not equal to the passing of those waters. And as for kings, I prefer my aunt. One thing always astonishes me when I think of Voltaire. Although gifted with a superior, rational, enlightened mind, he remained completely foreign to Christianity. He never saw what every one sees, that the institution of the gospel, to consider only the human aspect of it, is the greatest revolution that ever took place on earth. It is true to say that, in the age of Voltaire, this idea had come into the head of nobody. The theologians defended Christianity as an accomplished fact, as a verity based upon laws emanating from spiritual and temporal authority. The philosophers had hacked it as an abuse springing from priests and kings. They went no further. I have no doubt that, if one could suddenly have presented the other side of the question to Voltaire, his quick and lucid intelligence would have been struck with it. One blushes to think of the mean and limited manner in which he treated a subject which embraces nothing less than the transformation of peoples, the introduction of morality, a new principle of society, another law of nations, another order of ideas, the total change of humanity. Unfortunately, the great writer who ruins himself in spreading baleful ideas drags many minds of lesser capacity with him in his fall. He is like those old eastern despots on whose tombs men immolated slaves. There to Ferney, which no one visits now, to that Ferney around which I come to Rome alone, how many celebrated personages at one time hastened. 
They sleep, gathered together for all time, at the bottom of Voltaire's letters, their hypogean temple. The breath of one century grows weaker by degrees and dies away in the eternal silence, as one begins to hear the respiration of a new century. The Paki, near Geneva, 15th September, 1831. O gold, which I have so long despised, and which I cannot love whatever I may do, I am nevertheless forced to admit thy merit. The source of liberty, thou arrangest a thousand things in our existence, in which all is difficult without thee. Except in glory, what is there that thou canst not procure? With thee one is handsome, young, adored, one enjoys consideration, honours, qualities, virtues. You tell me that with gold one has but the appearance of all that. What matter, if I believe what is false to be true? Deceive me well, and I will release you from the rest. Is life other than a lie? When one has no money, one is dependent upon everything and everybody. Two creatures who do not suit one another could go each his own way. Well, for want of a few pistols, they must remain face to face, sulking, fuming, souring, bored to extinction, devouring each other's souls and the whites of their eyes, furiously sacrificing to one another their tastes, their inclinations, their natural methods of life. Poverty presses them close together. And in those beggars' bonds, instead of embracing, they bite each other, but not in the way in which Flora bit Pompey. Without money there is no means of escape. One cannot go in search of another son, and with a proud soul one wears chains without ceasing. O oh, happy Jews, dealers in crucifixes, who today govern Christendom, who decide peace or war, who eat pig after selling old hats, who are the favourites of kings and beauties, ugly and dirty though you be. Ah, if you would but change skins with me, if I could at least creep into your iron chests to rob you of that which you have stolen from young men under age, I should be the happiest man in the world. True, I might have a means of existence. I could apply to the monarchs. As I have lost all for the sake of their crown, it would be only fair that they should feed me. But this idea, which ought to occur to them, does not. And to me it occurs still less. Rather than sit at the banquets of kings, I should even prefer once more to begin the regimen which I kept in the old days in London, with my poor friend Angle. However, the happy times of garrets are past. Not that I was not most comfortable there, but I should be ill at ease. I should take up too much room with the flounces of my reputation. I should no longer be there with my one shirt and the slender figure of an unknown person who has not dined. My cousin, de la Boetardet, is there no more to play the violin on my truckle-bed in his red robes as a counsellor to the Parliament of Brittany, and to keep himself warm at night, covered with a chair by way of counterpane? Peltier is there no more to give us dinner with King Christophe's money? And above all, the witch is there no more, youth, who with a smile changes penury into a treasure, who brings you her younger sister Hope for a mistress, the latter also as deceptive as her elder, though she still returns when the other has fled for ever. I had forgotten the distress of my first emigration, and imagined that it was enough to leave France in order peacefully to preserve one's honour in exile. The larks fall ready roasted into the mouths only of those who reap the harvest, not of those who have sown it. 
If I alone were concerned, I should do marvellously well in an almshouse. But Madame de Chateaubriand? And so I have no sooner become settled than, as I cast my eyes upon the future, anxiety seizes hold of me. They wrote to me from Paris that there was no means of selling my house in the Rue d'Enfer, save at a price which was not sufficient to pay off the mortgages with which that hermitage is loaded, that something might nevertheless be arranged if I were there. Acting on this communication, I have taken a useless journey to Paris, for I found neither goodwill nor a purchaser. But I saw the Abbé au Bois again, and a few of my new friends. On the eve of my return here, I dined at the Café de Paris with Messieurs Arago, Pouqueville, Carrel, and Béranger, all more or less dissatisfied and deceived by the best of republics. The Paquis, near Geneva, 26th September, 1831. My étude historique brought me into relations with Monsieur Carrel, even as they made me acquainted with Messieurs Thiers and Minier. I had copied into the preface of those studies a fairly long passage from the Guerre de Catalogne by M. Carrel, and especially the following. Things in their continual and fatal transformations do not always carry every intelligence with them. They do not master every character with equal facility. They do not take the same care of all interests. This is what we must understand and make some allowance for the protests raised on behalf of the past. When a particular period is finished, the mould is shattered, and it is enough for providence that it cannot be made over again. But of the fragments left upon the ground, there are occasionally some that are beautiful to look upon. After these fine lines, I myself added this summary. The man who is able to write those words has reasons for sympathy with those who have faith in providence, who respect the religion of the past, and who also have their eyes fixed upon fragments. M. Carrel came to thank me. He represented both the courage and the talent of the National, on which he worked with Messieurs Thiers and Minier. M. Carrel belongs to a pious and royalist family of wrong. The blind legitimacy, which rarely distinguish merit, misjudged M. Carrel. Proud and alive to his worth, he had resort to dangerous opinions, in which one finds a compensation for the sacrifices one lays upon oneself. There happened to him what happens to all characters fit for great movements. When unforeseen circumstances oblige them to restrict themselves within a narrow circle, they consume their superabundant faculties in efforts which go beyond the opinions and events of the day. Before revolutions, superior men die unknown. Their public has not yet come. After revolutions, superior men die neglected. Their public has disappeared. M. Carrel is not happy. There is nothing more material than his ideas, nothing more romantic than his life. After being a Republican volunteer in Spain in 1823, being captured on the battlefield, condemned to death by the French authorities, and escaping a thousand dangers, he finds love mingled with the pleasures of his private existence. He has to protect a passion which is the mainstay of his existence, and this large-hearted man, ever ready to face a sword's point by daylight, sets wicket-gates before him, and the shades of night. He walks in the silent fields with a beloved woman, at that first dawn at which the reveille used to call him to the attack of the enemy's tents. 
I leave Monsieur Armand Carrel in order to write a few words on our famous songwriter. You will find my story too short, reader, but I have a claim on your indulgence. His name and his songs must be engraved on your memory. Monsieur de Béranger is not, like Monsieur Carrel, obliged to conceal his love affairs. After singing the praises of liberty and the popular virtues, while defying the jails of the kings, he puts his amours into a couplet, and behold, Lisette immortalized. Near the Barrier des Martyrs, below Montmartre, you see the Rue de la Tour d'Auvergne. In this half-built, half-paved street, in a little house hiding behind a little garden, and calculated upon the modesty of present-day fortunes. You will find the illustrious songwriter, a bald head, a somewhat rustic but keen and voluptuous air, announced the poet. I love to rest my eyes on that plebeian countenance, after looking at so many royal faces. I compare those so greatly different types. On the monarchical brows one sees something of an exalted nature, but blighted, impotent, effaced. On the democratic brows appears a common physical nature, but one recognises a lofty intellectual nature. The monarchical brow has lost a crown, the popular brow awaits one. One day I asked Béranger, I beg him to forgive me for becoming as familiar as his fame, I asked him to show me some of his unknown works. Do you know, he said, that I began by being your disciple? I was mad on the Génie du Christianisme, and I wrote Christian idyls scenes in the life of a country priest, pictures of religious worship in the villages, and in the midst of the harvest. Monsieur Augustin Thierry has told me that the Battle of the Franks in the Martyrs suggested to him a new manner of writing history. Nothing has flattered me more than to find my memory occupying a place at the commencement of the talent of the historian Thierry and the poet Béranger. Our songwriter has the several qualities upon which Voltaire insists for the ballad. To succeed well in these little works, says the author of so many graceful poems, one needs refinement and sentiment of intellect, to have harmony in one's head, not to lower oneself overmuch, and to know how not to be too long. Béranger has many muses, all of them charming, and, when those muses are women, he loves them all. When they betray him, he does not turn to elegiacs, and nevertheless there is a feeling of sadness at the bottom of his gaiety. His is a serious face that smiles. It is philosophy saying its prayers. My friendship for Béranger earned me many expressions of astonishment on the part of what was called my party. An old knight of St. Louis, personally unknown to me, wrote to me from his distant turret, Rejoice, sir, at being praised by one who has slapped the face of your king and your god. Well said, my gallant nobleman. You are a poet too. At the end of a dinner at the Café de Paris, which I gave to Messieurs de Béranger and Armand Cahel, before my departure for Switzerland, Monsieur Béranger sang us his admirable printed song. Chateaubriand, pourquoi fuit ta patrie, fuit son amour, notre ensemble et nos soins. In it occurred this stanza on the Bourbons. Et tu voudras t'attacher à la chute, qu'on est donc mieux la folle vanité Orang des mots que ciel même elle impute, le cœur ingrat met ta fidélité. To this song, which belongs to the history of my time, I replied from Switzerland by a letter which is printed at the head of my pamphlet on the Briqueville motion. I said to Monsieur de Béranger, From the place whence I wrote to you, Monsieur, 
I can see the country house where Lord Byron lived, and the roofs of Madame de Stael's chateau. Where is the bard of Child Harold? Where is the author of Corinne? My too long life is like those Roman roads bordered with funeral monuments. I returned to Geneva. I next took Madame de Chateaubriand to Paris, and brought back the manuscript directed against the Brickfield motion for the banishment of the Bourbons, a motion which was taken into consideration in the sitting of the deputies of the 17th of September of this year, 1831. Some attached their lives to success, others to misfortune. End of Book One, Part One